From the Institute for Research on Public Policy, this is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Claire Desjardins. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jude Walker, Professor of Adult Education at the University of British Columbia. She recently authored the new IRPP research publication, Poor Cousin No More, Lessons for Adult Education in Canada from the Past and New Zealand. Here's my conversation with Jude. Thank you, Jude, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you've recently authored uh, a a new IRPP insight on adult education. Um, So let's just jump right in. Why did you first decide to do this research? Well, this piece actually draws on a number of different research projects I've undertaken uh, in conjunction with others over the last decade. And I guess it really started, as you can probably tell from my lingering accent, I'm originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, for my PhD dissertation, I was really interested in how adult literacy in particular had become a policy focus of the government and what had led to that and what the country had been engaged in. And um, the piece also draws on research in Canada and and looking at uh, some of the initiatives, particularly over the 1990s and the the organizations that were pivotal, particularly in adult literacy across the country, starting in the 1970s, and then noticing by 2015, a lot of them went away. And it felt like adult education had its heyday, and then all of a sudden it's it's gone. And so I wanted to understand more what what led to this unraveling, uh, some things that my country where I grew up had been doing. And I guess at the heart of this is I really as you said, I'm a professor of adult education and I care a lot about adult learners and that, and I've experienced the, the transformative potential of learning myself and very invested in it. And so I think in Canada and thinking about recent history and the, the positive things that have been happening more recently that we can be doing better in terms of supporting learners for social, economic and personal reasons. Wonderful. And now you, you you talked about adult learners. You talked about liter- literacy a little bit there. I'm wondering who who would benefit from this research. Who who are the the people who are going to you know see the the positive outcomes ideally of of this research? Well, um, I guess this uh, research is looking at uh, adult education policy in many ways and some of the initiatives that New Zealand has undertaken and um, what Canada has done in the past. And I guess my main takeaway I hope people will will take from this is um, an expanded understanding of what we mean by adult education. So in many ways, to really help uh, fix some misconceptions, I think there are in the general public and, and in some ways that uh, adult education is just for a small number of people. It's just remedial education. And so really to expand our understanding of what adult education is. And in terms of who the research could could be for, and we'll get into the details, I guess, as we move forward, um, I would say given that, you know, we're all adult learners, we can all benefit from adult education, that it's for for everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. And when you say adult education, you know, some some people might have in mind, you know, literacy or 
the occasional type of training. So when what what else should we be considering when we think of adult education? What does that term really encompass for you? Well, I guess for me, it refers to any education of adults that fall outside of what we might understand as higher education or university mm-hmm. education. But even to address the question of adult literacy, what we've um, come to see in, in the last few decades is that even literacy itself is not this, you're either literate or illiterate, or it's equivalent to a ninth grade education, but rather it lies on a continuum in Mm. terms of how we can all develop our our literacy skills and it's contextual. So um, some of what has been driving policy in recent decades have been the OECD assessment of adult skills. So the more more recent program of international assessment of adult competencies or PIAC, which indicates that sometimes a a majority of people within societies uh, have struggles and needs in, in learning and in literacy, right? So to kind of expand what we understand as adult literacy and also adult education, not just for the marginalized, not just for the few, but as we are going through our, our lives and our working lives um, to engage in learning that can help us to further in our careers and support us in our professions and, and what have you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just thinking about, you know, you said these learners are are in areas that often fall outside of higher education, um, that this education might be remedial in some way. The paper touches on on the concept of stigma and and talks about how adult learners and teachers of adult education are often stigmatized. Why is that, do you think? And, and what can we do to help kind of change that that feeling and combat that stigma? Yeah, so, so it's a question I have thought about a lot and I feel quite strongly about. And um, I think a a simple answer in in some ways is that we have connected adult education to to a small marginalized group of people and it connects to remedial education. But then the question arises, so why is there stigma around remedial education, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think it's a a question of... um, of internalized shame of learners in many ways. Uh, so people who who didn't do so well at school, and we know school is not. And so when I'm speaking about school, I'm speaking about compulsory education, K to 12 education in Canada. And school doesn't work for everyone. And a lot of people got messaging that they were stupid because mm-hmm. they, they couldn't learn at the same rate, or they may have learning disabilities like dyslexia, which now we are coming to understand comes with both benefits and struggles and not is not just about, oh, this person can't read and write. And so I think there's a sense of stigma around um, adult basic education being for people who are quote unquote stupid. Mm. Um, and this and uh, can't do what perhaps they think is expected of adults in the general society can do. So I'm thinking back to an experience I had in teaching English language. And even though the students in my class you know, can, can speak fluently in their, in, their, in their mother tongue and they, can, um, they may even have master's degrees, but mm-hmm. they, they still feel shame that they can't 
speak at the level, you know, like if I went to Montreal right now, I would feel embarrassed and ashamed because my French is is pretty bad. And so I think it, it's connected to that. So adult education is connected to helping people with what we understand should be skills that they should already have. And um, and I think it also connects to who we see as deserving. And so I, um, we have this narrative sometimes that um, adult learners are people who mucked up in school, right? Or who, who didn't take the gift of free schooling. And so why should we help them? Um, and there can be gendered dimensions too to the stigma. And so one of the stories mm -hmm. I mentioned that came from a research of someone we interviewed in, in one of the studies with Marin Alfred uh, and myself is a, a program they had for, for literacy for single mothers in Canada. And it was shut down. And I think in part is because we have these you know, negative messaging around single mothers, around um, being irresponsible or mm -hmm. um, and what have you. And then in, in, in thinking about in, um, the, the messaging of the 1980s under Ronald Reagan in the U.S. around welfare queens who were scrounging off the state or what have you. So and and then I also think um, there can be some racialized dimensions here around, you know, refugees and uh, not the model skilled migrants who, why should we support their learning and education as, as a society? So I think there are really some issues around, you know, who we consider as deserving as opposed to, to children who are kind of the future. And, and I think in some ways, like I mentioned before, that we don't always give adults in our society the the support that they need mm -hmm. and and also I think there's also a connection to adult education not being very serious so it's connected to perhaps frivolous courses like cooking classes or yoga or, or Spanish and and then connected to this are the people who teach adult education so right. if we don't have um you know we have this connection to to volunteers a lot of the time and, um, and that it being a, a form of, of charity to support, for example, recent immigrants to Canada and, and learning English. And so it isn't considered in the same way as a profession as we consider like a university lecturer or uh, a school teacher. Right. Right. So just looking at the paper too, like, uh, you know, alongside this idea of combating stigma um, and maybe making adult education a bit more mainstream, you've got five really key, clear recommendations in the paper. I wonder if you could just walk me through each in turn and, and kind of describe what what the implications are for policymakers. Right. So uh, I guess the, the first... Uh, point it connects to making adult education more mainstream and this is looking and, and taking um, taking lessons from what happened in in New Zealand and really this connects to helping bring adult education into broader conversations policies and organizations that, relate to education, so it's not out on its own, um, and also bringing in um, 
adult education as something that pertains to everyone rather than those at the margins of society. Yeah, and connecting it to uh, other issues in in our society. So recognizing the connection adult education has to policies around housing, around the economy, around immigration. And so bringing it into what we've called in our work the the mainstream, so the policy mainstream, the mainstream of society. Uh, The second point connects to the importance of recognizing and capturing the multiple outcomes of engaging in adult education, whether that's a course in um, to help um, upgrade or or within one's workplace or completing a high school education that moves beyond saying uh, a person went from level one to level two or what have you, but rather to recognize that the outcomes of adult education include a lot of, of soft skills and a lot of what now the government is calling for under its nine skills for success. So, so um, helping with creativity and innovation, collaboration, communication, and, and and I remember years ago talking to um, an adult educator here in BC, mentioning, you know, my students now can make a phone call, they can ask for a promotion, they can show up to work on time. These are outcomes of adult ed that we're not really capturing. So, so I think that is yeah, that's related to the second point and. Um, and to combat sort of the sense of, you know, progress is only if you move up a level and go to the next level right. of learning or, or to get a job, no matter what it is. And then the third point is around professionalizing and recognizing adult educators. So um, as we consider school teachers, you know, a profession and something that you you study for and you you qualify for, uh, but we see this occurred uh, in New Zealand in particular, that there are recognized credentials mm-hmm. around teaching adults and that these are maybe not equally rewarded, but there are possibilities here for for more uh, com- commensurate pay for the, the kind of teaching that one's doing and, and being an adult educator. And so sometimes we have very well qualified adult educators, but who have credentials of many kinds, but they aren't necessarily recognized and the pay isn't commensurate with what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. So the fourth point connects to indigenous leadership. And again, um, in in New Zealand, of course, there is a strong Maori um, contingent and um, the history of Maori adult education organizations that help to develop that have helped to develop adult education policy and within, for example, the credentials that have been um, developed in more recent years, there've been requirements for, for example, people who want to teach as an adult literacy educator to actually learn about the context of the country and um, Maori language and Maori uh, culture. So this connects also to the creation in New Zealand of three Māori universities or learning centres, Wānanga, that offer free courses for, for everyone. So my parents, and who are in their 70s, my 
my sister, who also teaches adults in um, English language, have all taken free courses mm. around Maori language and culture through that. And so what I'm getting at here in terms of thinking about Canada, too, is more of a role of Indigenous leaders in certain communities, especially when we're thinking of rural and northern communities in places like BC or or um, where IRPP is in, in Quebec, mm -hmm. um, helping to determine what are the, the learning needs of, of their communities and opportunities that um, need to occur for, for people who are living in those communities and to help create and innovate of, in their economies. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the final point is around national coordination and sharing. And so, as we know, Canada is a huge country and it's a federal system, which is very different from yeah. where I grew up. It's a very manageable place with only 5 million people. But uh, there's a lot of different programs and uh, initiatives across the country that people don't know about. Mm. And so to reimagine national clearinghouses where people can learn about what's going on and best practices around teaching of adult learners and uh, would be really beneficial. And say you're a you're somebody who wants to retrain and go into a different profession. How do you learn about what's available and the kinds of skills that you get from that? And and this is very difficult right now in a way that I think is a lot easier in a place like New Zealand. And I wonder if there are opportunities to have um, these central clearinghouses mm. and more transparency and information around what's out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you mentioned that, you know, Canada and New Zealand are very different. Canada is a huge, geographically huge country, uh, federally managed. New Zealand, smaller, 5 million people, much more manageable in terms of size and, and government. Why New Zealand, um, beyond your personal connection, what what can Canada learn from Aotearoa, New Zealand? Where, where are the connections there and, and why is that an important um, kind of pillar to hold up? Yeah, I think there are always dangers and risks and benefits and comparing one context to another. Uh, because what we don't want is to say, you know, we should do exactly what they mm -hmm. did in this place and, you know, transfer it here without really recognizing the difference in context. I think the the two places clearly have a lot in common. They're um, settler colonial nations mm -hmm. and Canada, of course, it was the British and the French, um, but but both kind of reckoning with the the history of colonization and and what it means to work in um, in better relations with indigenous peoples, and uh, both I'm thinking particularly here in BC and and across Canada in general of being traditionally kind of a resource economy and moving towards uh, more high tech and, and differentiating uh, the economy over recent years and both um, attractive to and immigrant nations in many ways. Uh, and yeah, I'm, you know, we both uh, fall under still the Commonwealth and uh, have the queen who Had just the queen. passed away yeah. on our money. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there are, there are commonalities in terms of of the people, the histories, uh, the policies, and 
And of course, there are differences as well, like you've mentioned in, in geography in, in working with indigenous nations in New Zealand uh, is a bicultural. We've talked mm-hmm. about New Zealand as a bicultural nation, which is founded on a treaty between Maori and and uh, what we call Pākehā, which are the original white settlers of New Zealand. But we've gone beyond that to think about Māori and whoever has come to New Zealand as a, as a settler, a descendant of settlers, and um, as one people. And we know here in Canada we have First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and mm-hmm. hundreds of different languages and hundreds of different um, nations. So, so there's some complexity there. Uh, but I think... In, in many um, policy contexts, uh, uh, policymakers engage in, in what we refer to as policy borrowing and looking what's happening across the pond or in other jurisdictions to see how they've made sense or, or tried to reckon with different issues. So I think there is definitely a fruitfulness in looking to what other countries have done who are similar in certain ways. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now, looking forward with this study, what are your what are your hopes for it? Like, where do you want it to go? What types of changes would you like to see being brought to adult education in Canada that stem from this research? Well, I guess um, I think overall, it's um, policymakers to to pay more attention to adult education and mm-hmm. the core role it plays in all of these other aspects of our lives and to recognize that um, there are ways to better share what we already know. So for example, there are a lot of great programs in adult education across the country and we don't really know about them or we, unless we live there. And so I think uh, what I would hope is, is to move forward on more, um, like I said before, coordinated, more national coordination and sharing of what's out there, more transparency so people can access what's readily available. Mm-hmm. So so much of what I'm saying is not necessarily Canada is doing a terrible job of educating adults. It's more, can we really get a better sense of what we're already doing? Can we do a better job of consulting, particularly with adult educators about you know, about the positive outcomes that connect to these skills for success right. and and that what we're getting from these programs and to support that and to further support that and and to recognize um, the the professional learning of educators and for that to be recognized across the country. And as we know, being in Canada, even internal credential recognition has been such a battle. And, you know, we think about these labor market agreements. So, um, I guess that's a hope to really contribute to that conversation and, and say, you know, we should have a mechanism for recognizing the qualifications people bring across the country in terms of, of being educators and teachers and to and to support initiatives that are out there with our indigenous leaders mm-hmm. and, um, and communities and developing new policies and programs and working with educational institutions and organizations, for example, like here in BC, we have the... Um, Indigenous Adult Higher uh, Learning Association and bringing them more into the conversation of policymaking as key stakeholders and, um, yeah, and, and better identifying what the needs are and how we can better meet those needs. Mm-hmm. 
Now, looking presently across the the labor landscape in Canada, we're seeing a lot of talk about the current labor shortage that's maybe Mm -hmm. a result of COVID, maybe it's the result of an aging workforce. There there are lots of factors at play. I wonder, is adult education a a way of solving that? Can, you know, would would new training help adult learners fill those jobs and fill different roles than they traditionally would have in the past? And, And do you think improvements to adult ed in Canada would help us avoid seeing a, another type of, of labor shortage like we're seeing right now? Um, yes, that's <laughs> why I would uh, <laughs> clearly, uh, I'm uh, biased in that, in that arena. And, and I think, um, it's really interesting what's been going on over the last couple of years, because there seem to be these two issues from, and I'm not an economist and, and any stretch of the imagination, but, in terms of these skill mismatches, right? So it seems from from what I understand that, uh, you know, employers just are not finding qualified people, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So if we mm-hmm. think about the professions and engineers or or um, nurses, clearly, and uh, electricians, welders, there are not enough qualified people applying for these jobs. But in, in the other, again, I'm getting much of my information from the media on this, but but we see, you know, the great resignation of, of people yeah. leaving jobs that kind of in the service industry, for example. So mm-hmm. I go to my local cafe and it's closed at three because I don't have staff, right? And so that isn't that there aren't enough people in our society who don't have the skills to work there. It's more thinking about the jobs themselves. So in connecting to adult education, I think in terms of helping workers to to redeploy to different industries that are needed and retrain um, is is crucial. And I think this connects to to a better understanding of what, again, thinking about these clearinghouses and transparency around what's out there, what kind of programming people could access to, say, uh, leave the oil and gas industry mm. and move into these green technologies, mm-hmm. which is what we should be doing. And uh, to support this redeployment is um is crucial, right? And and again, this connects to the professionalization of adult educators and wanting to attract the best people to be teaching. And so we we often talk about in the field of education this the the uh, holding up on a pedestal Finland. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with this, but it happens <laughs> in education all the time in terms of you know Finnish education system. When we're talking about the K to twelve education system, is the best, and and they always do best on these these assessments like P- PISA is the main one is the um, for 15 year olds and how well they read and write and, and can do mathematics. But, but what we know about the Finnish system is that it's really hard to get into teachers uh, college hmm. or what we say it's um, you need a master's degree. It's a competitive program. Wow. We wow. don't we don't do that here. Um, we don't have that social status connected to to childhood teachers and which is a it's shame because it kind of reflects what do we value? Do we really mm-hmm. value learning uh, in our society, the learning of children, and even more so the the um, adult educators? So I think this connects to importance of attracting good people to um, to the field in in becoming adult educators. And in terms of um, you know, if we think my cafe at the corner is closing at three because they can't find enough 
staff, we want to think about what are these jobs offering people in terms of an an ability to not just use the skills, but develop these, again, these so-called soft skills or skills for success in terms of um, developing their critical thinking or leadership that could actually innovate. And so to support the adult education, professional development opportunities within the workplace as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are implications too, and we know in Canada and in, in immigration and, and meeting, and we know internationally this uh, that the labor shortage issues are arising all over with demographic change and aging and, and what have you. But I do think there is a role for adult education for people who are already here. Mm, yeah, that's a very hopeful note um, to kind of wrap up with. I, I, mm-hmm. I just wonder, for people listening to this podcast, you know, who, who, who are going to their local cafe and finding it closed and, and who might have, you know, now differing, differing opinions of what adult ed could mean. What should they take away from from listening to this conversation here? What would you like listeners to this podcast to do to help improve adult education in Canada? What can what can the average citizen do? And and what is the ultimate takeaway here for our audience? Well, I think it um, it would depend. Obviously, uh, a number of things that I'm advocating for do occur at the policy making level, mm-hmm. which is not the arena that many of us find us in. And maybe this is the case for some of your listeners. But I think that the main takeaway I want is for people to care about adult education and to correct in some ways this misconception that it is um just this one thing and it's just for um, a particular subset of people and that adult education is for everyone Mm -hmm. and that it's connected to other policy concerns. And so if we care about the labor market shortages, if we care about the economy, if we care about the environment, adult education is at the center there and to give it more of a kind of central role in our consciousness, say. And um and that, I guess, connecting back to the, the piece I wrote is the importance of learning from, from our past mm-hmm. in, in Canada and what worked and what didn't and what we might want to do next and in looking to other places to inform um, how we might want to make changes in our policy and our programming and in our societies. Absolutely. Well, Professor Walker, thank you so much for joining us here on the Policy Options Podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think this is a really important study that I hope many Canadians will take to heart. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Professor Jude Walker from the University of British Columbia. To read her study, head over to IRPP.org and check out Poor Cousin No More, Lessons for Adult Education in Canada from the Past in New Zealand. It's part of our research program on the future of skills and adult learning. Thanks so much for listening.